you open up your Bible to John chapter 3, I want to remind you that we've been coming to this verse with specific detail because it encompasses so much of the value and of the nature of God. It's, it's a beautiful image that we have of who God is. And I want to read with you verse 16, but to set it up in context again, I want to keep reminding you what the context is of this verse. And we see these, this, uh, this in context two verses prior. So in John chapter 3, verse 14, it says, And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world, and in parentheses we could say, in that way or in that, this way, that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. This verse is a reminder of the heart of God. And as we keep uh, dissecting this verse little by little, word by word, we get to see the beauty of God in, in the face of Jesus Christ. Who this person is, is beautiful. It's marvelous. And it gets us to understand our nature and our sinfulness before a glorious God. And so friends, as we return to John 3.16, we, we must surrender all our preconceptions of what we think God is. Because what we've been accustomed to do, as humanity is so accustomed in doing, is create for ourselves a deity conforming to our ingenuity. And so that's not what the Bible calls us to do. And as we approach this, we are, the, our, 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 our understanding of God gets modified by what He says and who He says He is. And most importantly, by what He does for people like you and me. So that's why it's important to, to go back to the story of Lazarus. Last week, we, we ended around the same theme. And I just want to reiterate it once more to, to make sure it really makes sense to you. We, we will be uh, going through chapter 11 of John in much more detail once we get there, but the story makes so much sense in this context because it describes for us the nature of who we are before Christ. And as you can see, and if you know a little bit of the New Testament, you know and understand the story of Lazarus where he is dead and Jesus comes to him and calls him to life. And so this story is important because we realize what sinners bring to the table. What is it that they bring? They bring nothing. Like Lazarus, before Christ, every single one of us is dead. And not only dead, but dead in our sin, which turns us as enemies against God. We'll dissect that a little bit more as we continue in our study today. Christ does not save those who deserve to be saved. We read this in, in Luke chapter 19. He came to seek and to save the lost. Those who are lost and dead 
in their ways. Friends, there's no prerequisites to come to Christ because Christ comes to us. And that is why we sing. And that is why on Sunday mornings, it, it is so much less about us. As a matter of fact, it isn't about us as we come to listen to God's word and worship him through song. It is about the glorious nature of God through Jesus Christ, that he came to a sinner like you and me. If you take a deep evaluation of your life, you've understood that you really did not deserve God's grace in God's love, yet he gave it to you and came to you. And this pattern is unfolded in the gospel of John. A person's walk with Christ begins with God's steps towards them. The love of God is prior to our faith, prior to whatever we could do. That's why the, the context of Lazarus is so important because there was nothing physically, emotionally, internally that Lazarus could have done to come to Christ. It was Christ that made the journey to get to Lazarus. And it was Christ's voice that was sent out to bring Lazarus forward. So we understand this later in John, in his epistle, especially in 1 John chapter 4, verse 19, when he says, We love because he first loved us. There was a first mission on behalf of Christ towards us so that we can respond to his gospel. Upon, upon proper analysis of our verse and study, God loved the world in this way that He gave His unique Son so that all may have eternal life. But for whoever believes in His unique Son is what we have to understand qualifies the sentiment before the, our verse, before the love of Christ. It is belief. It is faith in Jesus Christ alone. You see, Jesus doesn't come to save and to love all and therefore everyone goes to heaven. If that was the case, then the reality of it is we none of us would need to be in church or read our Bible or, or do anything spiritually because we'd all be safe in a sense. But the qualifier is that there is a demand for repentance. There is a demand to realize that nothing in ourselves is good enough and we cannot save ourselves. And the fact is that we have to know that we need and recognize that we need to be saved. We've said this time and time again here at Vida Abundante Church. Uh, many people in our postmodern culture they don't understand that there is a need of salvation because they are good in themselves. They give money to charity. They help support worthy causes. They, they raise up philanthropic uh, opportunities. and, and having, they, they do a lot of good in this world. And so, therefore, the need of a Savior doesn't really exist within them. They, they are good enough to... To if there is a heaven to enter, and if there's not, then they just die in peace. Friends, that's not the case. And that's why John 3.16 is so important because it does qualify this. So 
this demand for repentance. How does one then repent? And as we continue in this study, we'll answer this very important question. God's love is shown by His giving of His Son, which entails two important realities as we study this verse. God gives the world the highest gift, His unique and only Son. This is very important. This is one aspect of us understanding the importance of Jesus Christ. The verb is a very important verb here in John 3.16. The verb, when, when we read, For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son. This verb is interesting, giving. And usually in the context of a mission, one is sent, which in John 3.17, that mission gets clarified and the verb is used Apostoleo, which means to be sent. If you read verse 17 with us, For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through Him. In that context, that sending is in reference to salvation. And in verse 16, it relates to the love of God because He gives His only Son this verb didomai is an interesting verb because it, it, it represents the mission of God in an emotional context, but not the way we would consider emotions, but in understanding God's love for the lost world. He gives. He not only sends, He gives. So it's linked together with this wonderful attribute of God. And so the second aspect in this verse is God's giving also means atonement. The way God gave is important here because He doesn't just give His Son, but that giving entails expiation. It entails atonement. It entails death upon a cross. Salvation, therefore, rests on one's faith in the selfless act of the Son. That is why we need to repent. That is why we need to have faith in Jesus Christ alone because the Father puts this forward, gives Jesus for us in order to understand our dire need. We need to be cleansed from our sin. It is because of sin that this world is lost and in darkness. That's why Christ came to find the lost, to save the lost. This world is in darkness and without light, the world can never see God. So He is sent to save the world, as John 3.17 says, and take away its sin as we read in John chapter 1, verse 29. And that's why Jesus is a consistent reference to Him and light. It's Jesus as the light of the world because the darkness of this world has prohibited people from coming to Him. That's the giving aspect. That's what it means to, for God to give His Son and to show His love. But we must pause here because it's important to understand that the world hates the gift of the Son. 
It hates God's giving. We see this in John chapter 7, verse 7. And once again, the references that we make to John will be clearly and detailed uh, preached through and, and taught through once we get there. But, but I want you to understand that this is what John has in mind as he's writing the gospel. This is what the Holy Spirit is inspiring through the writing of John, that the world hates Jesus. And we saw this in chapter 1. It rejected Christ. It rejected. It did not know him because of one important fact. It exposes the world's evil. It exposes the darkness with the coming light of Jesus Christ. Jesus comes into a world and exposes its sin. And therefore the world hates Jesus and its followers because it does not recognize who he really is as the Messiah. That's why we see so many people today rejecting Christ. They fail to acknowledge that the Father and His Son are now with us and therefore the creation now has no excuse. God loves a dark world and that love of a dark world is the same love that they give to the darkness in rejection of the light. So this is what the this is the type of world and the environment as we spoke about last week that Christ enters. So then how do men come to God? How do men and women come to the saving aspect of God the Father through Jesus Christ? It's a very important question to ask. The answer to it is very simple. They don't because they can't. What does John 3:16 say? God gave. God, in verse 17, God sends. What we must understand is that God comes to them. God comes to us into the world. Paul says sin rules over the world in Romans chapter 5, and therefore the world is at enmity with God, and it resists the redeeming work of the Son. But God walks towards them. And this is the God that they reject. So we can't and we don't walk towards God. It is He that initiates our salvation. And we see this in the, in the patterns of Lazarus and the blind man that we spoke about in John chapter 9 last week. We see Christ, we see the Father approach humanity by coming to them first. And humanity, therefore, is that enmity with Christ and enmity with God because it rejects that gift. But to those born of God, as John 3.16 says, those who do believe are born from above. If you rewind your memory a bit to the beginning of John chapter 3, Jesus has this conversation with Nicodemus and he is telling him that in order for him to see the kingdom of God, he must be Born from above. Born from God, in a sense. They are not physically taken out of this world. They are not people that, that, that become abducted, like an alien abduction that are taken from the world, in, in, in that sense. Rather, they live in this world. We, as children of God, live in this world and endure suffering, but we are redeemed 
from its domination. And we're quick as human beings to often uh, put together suffering with what we go through in our lives. And, and those are things that are very real, like health issues, uh, loss of jobs, and especially in this crisis, all the bad things that are surrounding us, we, we suffer from that. But in John's gospel, suffering not only entails that, but it also speaks on the suffering, dying consequences of our sinful nature. We suffer in our sin because we die. We are dead to Christ before he comes and makes us alive. And so that's what the physician does. He brings us to life, and that's what he does in Lazarus' case. Those who choose to remain in the world resist Christ, and God sends them to practice God sends us to practice in this world before those who do reject Christ, love for our neighbor and love for our enemy. So these concepts, my friends, are be, will begin to raise a lot of questions, as I mentioned last week. A lot of tension will begin to arise in this. Are, is God completely in charge of our salvation or do we have a say in what to do and how to be saved? Up until now, what John is letting us know, first and foremost, as of chapter 1, that we are born from above. We keep hearing these concepts through John that it is God who comes to us. And in the most important verse or may, may, maybe the most popular verse that we have, in our present day and that we've had throughout all of history is that John 3.16 speaks on this very fact. God comes, God gives, God sends. It initiates with God. And we'll see that as we go through the gospel. This is just the beginning. We're only in John chapter 3. So God does not call the church in this sense, those who are saved in Christ, to love this world, even though God loves it, but He loves it in a redeeming fashion. We must stay clear of its seductive powers. This world is very seductive. It allures us with all of its temptation. Those who love this world and are in love with this world continue to remain as enemies of God, and they cannot love. God loved the world and gave His Son for it. He sent His Son on a mission and now sends the church into the world to preach this saving gospel. Now the important aspect here that we must know is once we come at this verse in much detail, we see that God initiates God gives, God loves a sinful world. That's why we've been spending so much time on those first couple of words. But now we come to, a, to the climax of this verse. He, he loved the world by the giving of His only Son. And I love how the ESV clarifies that for us. Only Son. We're going to have this concept of the exclusivity of Christ or the uniqueness of Christ or like the reformers stated solus Christus Christ alone and what that means is that salvation is in no other so when God gives and God sends he 
has a particular purpose. And there's only one way to accomplish or to come to him. He's the one that establishes that for us. And that's why Jesus Christ becomes the, the, this important aspect to our salvation. It is faith in him and what he did for us that brings us to salvation. So this important theme in this verse is this concept of the exclusivity of Christ. The uniqueness of Christ has to do with His purpose. Salvation. Christ alone saves. That's why we read in verse 16 that Jesus is the monogenes. This is an important word and I'll get to that in a bit. This means that, the that it's the only one of its kind. That's why in the ESV it says He gave His only Son. That's important. There is one Son that brings salvation. So this not only speaks on His uniqueness, but it also speaks on His role as mediator and redeemer of humanity. And we're going to develop those themes as we continue in our study. The word monogenes is only used in John as a Christological title because it entails his work. He is above all earthly and heavenly beings. In the King James Version, for those who maybe have memorized this verse in the King James Version, we, we, we find the word translated only begotten. That's a common you know, many of us that memorize, even myself, I memorized this in the King James language many years ago. And I was used to saying the only begotten Son. And this goes back to the translator, the early translator in the 5th century, Jerome, who used unigenitus in the Latin, in the Latin word uh, to translate this Greek word in the Latin Vulgate. And this was done to counter during the Christological debates of the first five centuries, the Arian claimed that Jesus was not begotten but made. And so that's why Jerome utilized this word to translate monogenes, which is right because in the Greek word, it does mean of a generation or of being born, but in John's context, it's used differently. It is to focus, focus our attention on the exclusivity of Christ in His Christological sense, in the salvific sense, that He is alone, unique, and only from God to accomplish His mission. So it has these two important aspects, and that's why Jesus later will read in John chapter 10, verse 30, that He says, I and the Father are one. Because He alone is unique that He alone is God here on earth. It's the God-man. It's the incarnation that we spent so much discussing in chapter 1. So this uniqueness of, God, of Christ here on earth affects His job role and job description. Because only God can save. Only God can redeem. Only God can wash away our sins. So this mono uh, theme, this only theme, this exclusivity theme is not unique in a sense to the New Testament in Christ. Because we see this prior to Christ in the Old Testament. 
That's where we get this concept of monotheism and God. we only have one God because it's a strong indication of what God does and how he carries his people. As the leader of his people in Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse 12, it says, The Lord alone guided him. No foreign God was with him. And as, as the creator of the universe, Job chapter 9, verse 8 uh, clarifies this and says, Who alone stretched out the heavens and trampled the waves of the sea? The prophet Isaiah would say in chapter 37, verse 16, O Lord of hosts, God of Israel, enthroned above the cherubim, you are the God, you alone of the kingdoms of the earth, you have made heaven and earth. And God in the Psalter is the only one that deserves Worship. We sang this a little while ago. He alone deserves our highest praise. Psalm chapter 71 verse 16 says, With the mighty deeds of the Lord I will come. I will remind them of your righteousness. Yours alone. So this mono theme, this alone theme is very important because it talks about the exclusivity of God in salvation and with his people and now in Christ. And that's why in the New Testament, we have this in most of the doxologies that we read from some of the epistles. For instance, in Romans chapter 16, verse 27, we read, To the only wise God be glory forevermore through Jesus Christ. Amen. Paul says in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 17, To the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. And then he finishes off uh, the, this epistle of, of 1 Timothy in chapter 6, verses 15 and 16, by saying, Which he will display at the proper time, he who is blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, who alone is immortality, who dwells in, approachable, in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see. To him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. And the second to last book of the New Testament, we get this doxology too in Jude, verse 25. To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority, be all time and now forever. Amen. The only one deserving of worship is Jesus Christ. Because there is, He is unique. He is the unique gift of God to humanity and when humanity sinful people like you and me realize the greatness of Jesus Christ the perfection of Jesus Christ the uniqueness of Jesus Christ our response is doxological it is worship of the highest kind because we realize that nothing or no one else could have accomplished what Christ accomplished for us on the cross and therefore we Return the highest praise. Why is Jesus exclusive? Why is there a necessity of exclusivity in Christ? Why is it that God could not save through various forms? And as we continue in our study, 
We're going to be developing those ideas as we speak later on about the atonement. It's going to be very important stuff that we speak about on John 3.16. That's why this verse is so important to our biblical understanding of who God is and what Jesus does. Why is he unique? Why is he exclusive? Well, we can answer that with three simple affirmations that we'll later develop. First of all, he meets our need. Only Christ can do that. Only Christ can accomplish all of God's sovereign purposes. And only Christ can save us from our sin. Why? Because He alone is God. And so aspects of Christ's uniqueness become very important for our understanding. First of all, there's salvation and no one else. This is what we've understood about the uniqueness of Christ. Humanity could not be saved any other way. So this goes into our plurality world where there is multiple ways and avenues for salvation. This is where people cringe. This is where people feel most uncomfortable with Christianity. Because they say, look, man, you guys say that Jesus is the only way to heaven, but what about these other religions? What about the Muslim faith? What about the Mormons? What about the, 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 the Jehovah Witnesses? What about all these other pantheistic religions all around the world in India and, uh, and in Europe? What about them? Are they not too going to heaven because they practice some spiritual form of, of life and doing good to others? Is there not multiple ways unto heaven? Well, John 3.16 answers that for us because there's only one Son. And, there's only through, and it's only through Him that faith saves us. And those who do not have faith in Christ will not be saved. I, I remember seeing an interview not too long ago on CNN, and I, and I actually preached about this when that, CNN interview came out because it, it, it baffled my mind that a preacher, a popular prominent preacher in the United States would, would, would sit in on the Larry King show, this is when Larry King was still on CNN, and would say that he doesn't know if, if, if all the other religions are going to hell. And, and so if he understands John 3.16 correctly, he would have had to affirm, yes, if they do not come to Christ, they will end up in hell because that's what John 3.16 says. Will perish. They will perish. So the exclusivity claim of Jesus Christ, friends, this is where everybody's love of Christ comes to a stop and they say, you know, keep, keep teaching us about his humanitarian efforts. Keep teaching us about his uniting and peace and loving efforts. That's good. We want to know about that. But when it comes to the exclusivity of Christ, that's where people put a wall. And in our postmodern culture, that's where we have to be the loudest. Friends, this world will not be saved any other way than through Jesus Christ. And you as the church are entailed and, and, and are on a mission to preach that gospel. You should not be ashamed. You should not uh, shy away from this. This is what you preach. 
You're not supposed to preach anything other, any, anything else. There's no uh, making this softer. It's Christ alone. He alone does a- accomplishes salvation. Christ alone is God, and therefore it is faith in Him that we receive our salvation. In the Gospel of Matthew, we read Matthew chapter 1, verse 21. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. And in verse 23, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name what? Emmanuel, which means God is with us. And although that's a very wonderful theme on Christmas, Emmanuel, God is with us. If we just read two verses prior, he is here to save us from our sins. He alone, Emmanuel, God with us, will save us from our sins. In chapter 20, verse 28, Even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to, but to serve, and give His life as a ransom for many. Friends, Christ alone is mediator between humanity and God. Christ understands this and can preach as He does because He knows what He has come to do. He divides those seeking alternative or ulterior saviors. It's only in Christ. Christ, Jesus, preaches this himself. If you look at the Gospels like Mark and Luke, we'll we'll understand this, that this is how Jesus saw himself. In Mark chapter 1, verse 38, And he said to them, Let us go to the next towns that I may preach there also, for that is what I came out to do. And in chapter 10 of Matthew, verse 34, Do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. Matthew, 35, Matthew 10, 35, For I have come to set a man against his father, and a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. What Christ is doing here is separating those who will have faith from those who don't. In Luke chapter 12, verse 49, I came to cast fire on the earth, and would, and would that it were already kindled. This is the words of Christ. Some people say, well, Paul is a little harsh on his salvation aspect. Well, this is Christ. He comes to divide, to bring fire, and to bring a sword. Therefore, to reject the Son inherits damnation. Jesus also understands this and his, and he understands that this is his reason for coming to preach. In Matthew, back to Matthew chapter 10, verse 33, But whoever denies me before men, I will also deny before my Father who is in heaven. In Luke chapter 10, verse 16, The one who hears you, hears me. And the one who rejects you, rejects me. And the one who rejects me, rejects him who sent me. First John chapter 2 verse 23, no one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. Christ alone washes away our sin. So there is condemnation for those who do not believe. And if we rewind a little bit, how do they believe? Christ comes to them and brings them to life. What Nicodemus heard from the words of Christ is be born from above. The Holy Spirit, like the wind, we don't see it, we don't know where it comes from, but it regenerates you and makes you 
alive. That's what happened to Lazarus. So Christ alone is the only way to salvation and faith in Him is the assurance of salvation. Christ alone, because Christ alone washes away our sin. Go back to Mark chapter 2, verse 5 and 7. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Verse 7, why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Because Jesus Christ is God, the only Son, he alone can save and wash us away from our sin. Wash away all of our sins. Friends, that's why this Christ alone theme is so important. This monogenes, this only son, this only savior is so important to our understanding in our Christian faith. Christ alone fulfills all these qualifications. His exclusivity is important. Only Christ can save because only Christ fulfills this. Only Christ fulfills the qualification for sacrifice and for priests. Humanity is stained by sin, by the first Adam. As a matter of fact, God promises, God, God, God's promise of redemption occurs immediately after humanity's fall. We see this in what we call the Proto-Evangelion in, in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, where the redemption of the world will come from the seed of a woman. This offspring will crush the head of the serpent, defeat the enemy, and restore the image of God's creation, God's plan in action. Who else can defeat Satan for us? There's apparent many moves within certain evangelical circles that we can stomp on the head of Satan and we can go into the ring, in the boxing ring with Satan and come out victorious. Well, friends, I don't want to get in that ring and I don't want to be that boxer. I want Christ to do that for me and Christ has done that for me because it was promised in Genesis chapter 3 that he would conquer Satan, and he did so by defeating him on, upon his death and resurrection, and he will come back to completely vanquish any of his efforts to win us over to the dark side. Christ alone defeats Satan for us and reconciles us back to God the Father. It is Christ alone. I've been doing some study in the 16th century reformers, but not the European reformers, but the Spanish reformers. And I love what one of them says he, when they come to this understanding, this theological understanding. Antonio del Corro says, From this condition we can never get out, neither by our preparations, nor by our works, nor by our diligence, prudence, or carnal wisdom, but only that the Lord, by His pure goodness, wants to touch us lively, and by His sovereign power opens our eyes to recognize our unfortunate state, that, and that by His kindness He washes us, purifies us, and cleanses us of all our dirt and spiritual stains by the shedding of the most pure and innocent blood of our Redeemer Jesus. End quote. This God-man, my friends, the redemptive promise is, the, is that God will accomplish this through a man. However, no man in biblical narrative even came close to accomplishing this for us. They all failed miserably. The old covenant mediators carried the same genes as the first disobedient Adam and could not usher in the kingdom of God. This could only be done by the God-man. Central to Jesus' preaching is the kingdom of God. As we read earlier in John chapter 3, verse 3, no one can see the kingdom of God unless he is born again or born from above. 
Jesus ushers in this kingdom of God and sets up the new covenant we, we, we read about in Jeremiah chapter 31. What Jeremiah says here is crucial to our understanding of the new covenant. In chapter 31, 34, he, it offers a complete forgiveness of our sin. That's the new covenant Jesus Christ is offering. In Jesus, we have been clothed, in, who was clothed in flesh, who perfectly obeys, unlike the original Adam, something no other was able to do. And as the, and the cause of sin entering the world, he takes on our guilt in order to reverse the effects of the fall and to satisfy the requirements of himself. He is the obedient son given for a disobedient world. That's why Christ is exclusive. The highlight of the ministry of Christ is the cross. It is the ultimate sign. We don't come to Jesus because he is a miracle worker or because he exemplifies mercy and love. We do not follow Jesus for his humanitarian work. We come to him because he alone can wash away our sins and because he has come to us first. We are great sinners and he is a great savior. I love the words in a book that I recently read by Pastor Dan Ortland. He describes Jesus as the gospel Matthew describes him as being gentle and lowly. Something that we have to understand as sinners. And the reason why we could come to Christ. And so the way Christ deals with us as sinners is in a gentle and lowly fashion. Dan Ortland speaks on Hebrews chapter 5, verse 2, which says, He can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward since he himself is beset with weakness. Upon this verse, the, the, the concept that Dan Ortland de develops is that as a mediator between us and God, he can sympathize with us. Because Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15 speaks about him sympathizing with, our, with, with, our, with us, and that really means co suffering. Along with us, he feels what we feel and understands us. And he handles the ignorant and wayward in a gently fashion. This is the Christ that invites us to salvation. Friends, we don't have to be afraid of Christ. We don't have to be afraid of him because he's going to bring judgment completely upon us. Judgment will come when we run away. But when he speaks life, but when Christ says, you, Jose, or you, John, or you, Alex, come to me, for I am gentle and lowly in spirit. It is because he will wash our sin away and carry us. See, we don't need to be perfect to come to Christ. We're all dead anyway. We don't need any certain qualification. We don't need a PhD. We don't need anything about us. We're dead. And this is the invitation that Christ makes for us because he will deal with us gently and lowly in a gentle fashion. That's the beauty of our Christ. He gives us love and deals with us in that way. But for those who reject this son, for those who set him apart, for those who find salvation within themselves, the Word of God does not promise that God will deal with us gently and lowly. Jesus will sit on the throne 
and will judge us from that seat, will judge us from that position of authority. For those who reject Christ will receive the complete wrath and condemnation from heaven forever and ever. And that is why, my friends, today is once more the day of salvation. Come to Christ because He is gentle and lowly. You don't need perfection. You need Christ to wash away your sins. So today, my friends, make this decision. Wake up. If you hear Christ's words, wake up. Come to Him instead of avoiding Him. Because one day, you will stand before Him. Just like every single one of us here, we will stand before Christ. Sing with us once more.